Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. And I think we can all agree on one thing. Puppets are fucking creepy. Doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter who makes them, they're always fucking creepy. So joining me today to talk more about how puppets and really all toys can be goddamn terrifying is author William Sterling for his soon-to-be-released book, String Them Up, coming out September 22nd through our good friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. William, welcome to the show. It's so cool to have you here. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited about this. All right. So, you know what? Let's just start by giving us a quick walkthrough, if you could, about what this book is all about. Uh, the basic sales pitch for the book is that we've got a detective named Sinclair who has had a bad run of luck in his uh, regular life, needs to hit a hard reset button on his life. Uh, and one of his old buddies invites him to come out to this small rural town called Hollow Hills. It's intended to be just like a retreat as he rebuilds things in his life, uh, kind of resets his mind. It's supposed to be just this nice, quiet town where nothing ever happens. Um, turns out this uh, this job opportunity is coming with a lot of strings attached because puppets, but um, bam. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> all the shit hits all the fans very quickly and we've got murder puppets and we've got bad people getting bad things done to them it's it, it turns into a whole circus and i had a lot of fun with it i can tell you a lot of fun with it because folks can't really see this but in the background you get this whole haunted toy setup here have you always been into the notion of just like haunted toys haunted puppets i'm a really big horror fan uh the puppets aspect of it uh i've had I've had little things just like flare up over the course of my life that are like, oh, that puppet's fucking creepy. Um, but I wouldn't pin myself down as like a collector of haunted puppets or anything like that. It's not it's not a hard niche for me. I get you. I get you. So why go this route then for this book? Why go with the haunted puppets versus anything else? Yeah, good question. Um, so whenever I write a book, I try to... Uh, kind of marry two different ideas together. I want to have some sort of a human story that I'm telling through it. Uh, I think having characters that are that are active and trying to resolve something themselves is really a big deal. And I always try to marry whatever's going on with my main characters with some horror element that I want to play up. Um, and a lot of the the outlining and creation process for me is trying to figure out like what kind of a spooky goes with what sort of a what sort of an issue for our characters. So with this one, um, our main character, Sinclair, and uh, the big bad that gets revealed, Gregory, uh, both have things in their pasts that they are grieving. Uh, they are handling their grief in very different ways, as we learn. But I think what drew me to puppets for the horror element of this one is just this idea of people being able to project onto toys while they're playing with them. Uh, I've got a couple of little kids and just watching them play with action figures and stuff. You can learn a lot about where their head spaces are just from watching them playing with those toys and seeing how they make the toys interact with each other. Um, my, the, the, the older three-year-old one, his name is Craig and he'll come home from school and be clearly upset about something and won't want to talk to me about it. It's like, okay, buddy, whatever. Um, you, you'll tell me when you're ready, but then he'll be in the other room playing with his toys and all of a sudden, like the Power Ranger hit the Paw Patrol dog on the playground. And it's like, oh, OK, I see this now. 
And I think there's a big element of that anytime you're playing with puppets or playing with dolls or something, you're kind of putting yourself in there. So when it's something cute and innocent, like a three-year-old, like that's all well and good. Um, but taking that and having these irreparably damaged people projecting into the dolls, we get we get a good horror playground to to dig into there, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. How would you say that the book would be different if you went with something else, if you went with some kind of demon, for for example, being behind all the killings as opposed to this haunted toy? Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like whatever whatever direction we go with here, there's some subtext and history to the thing. So if it's demons, a lot of demon movies, demon books play around with religious trauma, um, play around with um, everything that goes along with organized religion and finding your faith and crises of faith. And that that's usually core in some sort of a demon story. Um, if we're if we're going werewolves then we've got body disfigurement we've got we've got all of this body horror mixed in so i think it, it on top of just changing up some of the big scare scenes uh it would have influenced just the characters that i was building a little bit different um you see if you see chucky the doll jump out of a closet and you react a certain way to it that that's gonna tell me a little bit about you and then if you see a werewolf jump out of a closet and like you get bit or you know whatever happens like that can take a character in a totally different direction. It's funny because you would think that a haunted toy wouldn't be that scary. Like you got like Chucky, he's like a foot tall. It's still fucking terrifying. This is sort of a general horror question, but how do you, why do you think that the genre of haunted toys has persisted throughout the years? I think it's persisted because it recognizes that it's, the scary puppet things that persist in my mind are the ones that recognize that they are not demons and they are not as scary as demons um they have to treat themselves differently like inherently with chucky yeah it's kind of scary to have a little thing running around with a knife that could jump out at any moment but then you get these shots of chucky running down a hall with his stumpy legs going and it's it's comedic um it it is funny and a little bit absurdist and i think the puppet things that do really well are the ones that accept that ridiculousness and embrace it a little bit tucky is tucky chucky is very tongue-in-cheek there are jokes dropping a mile a minute the just the crude way that chucky talks uh plays it up you're meant to laugh with that and then be scared and it kind of plays with the back and forth a little bit more than there are very few moments of levity with the exorcist right it's just dark and gets darker and darker um, but I think puppets, when when they're done well, kind of play around with that idea that, yes, this is a little bit goofy, and we're going to use that. Does your book have that, those moments of levity, or is it more just dark the whole way? Yeah, the first draft of this book tried to just be dark. I didn't let myself... Um, play with the subject matter the way that it wanted to be played with. I tried to force this square peg into a round hole um, and tried to try to make like an A24 book where it was all very straight laced and it was all very focused and like hereditary ish. And it just didn't work. Uh, I went back and looked at it at the end of the day. And after I had gone through draft two or three and just trying to figure out why I wasn't enjoying the story, um, it was because it didn't have anything 
fun in it. Um, so after uh, we, we've had this cool resurgence in puppet horror recently with the Chucky TV series coming out, and like Grady Hendrix's How to Sell a Haunted House and Rachel Harrison's Bad, Bad Dolls. There's a lot of doll things floating around all of a sudden again. Um, so watching some of those things and having this book kind of sitting in the back, it clicked with me at a certain point that the reason I wasn't enjoying the book was because the book wasn't fun. So I went back, went back to the drawing board, kept like 70% of the book, but those other 30% of the books, I just threw in some elements that was like the first time around, no, this is way too stupid. I shouldn't include this. The second time around it was, let's just include it and see what happens. And I think the book got a lot better for it. Um, I've got ridiculous kills that like you, you are going to laugh at them at the end of it because it's just so stupid how it played out. Um, but it, it, it's used as a vehicle to drive this building terror in the background. And I think having the push and pull, uh, having both sides of the seesaw going, uh, made the thing holistically better. Do you have a lot of bad puns? I don't. None what? of my dolls are talking. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. I, I missed that. Um, I do have, uh, killer peacocks running around. Um, they're, they're, there's a peacock farm in this town and they get loose and rung amok in the middle of everything else going on. So, uh, scratch, scratch puns, but add ridiculous animal, uh, encounters. Okay. Okay. Killer peacocks. How does that fit into everything? <laughs> I went to college in Rome, Georgia and was on the cross country team there and like part of distance running is just taking off into the woods and disappearing for hours on end super fun um so one of the times me and my teammates kind of took off into the woods and isolated for a while we we explored all the weird nooks and crannies of this town and for some reason it is just a constant through line in rural areas that Somebody in every small town has an exotic animal farm. I don't know why this is a thing, but like you go up to Dahlonega and there's this weird koi farm sitting there where they've got koi fish everywhere. In Rome, Georgia, we didn't know this when we took off on the run, but we, we ran smack into the middle of a peacock farm with about 20 to 25 peacocks just on buildings, in the woods, screaming and taking off around you. And we didn't know what they were. So we just see these low lying things zipping through the woods like velociraptors. And it left an impression. Um, I was I was scared out of my mind by oversized birds. And uh, when, when I started the horror stuff, I kind of had in the back of my mind, like, I've got to find a way to use that somewhere. Um, I was kind of thinking it would be a throwaway story that I included in because it's just so ridiculous that I, I didn't know how I would work it into something seriously. So when I got to the point with String Them Up where I needed more levity, I needed something fun to be happening in this book. That was one of the things that I plugged in. Like, this is really weird. <laughs> it's true, but people are going to think this isn't like, a, a, a realistic thing to put in here but we're we're gonna work it in we're gonna see what works and as soon as i gave myself kind of that fun piece to play with 
there's three or four different spots in the stories that it was like, oh, this is perfect because I've got the peacocks in the background. I can just have them fly in and here we go. We've got the peacocks back now. Uh, they're, they're, they're the cure-all for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, it sounds like it was a very cathartic experience to finally be able to take this like nightmare from your past years and put it in your books. Yeah. Yeah, I think all horror authors do that a little bit, either drawing from past experiences that they're still trying to resolve and come to terms with or um, projecting their own fears and uh, practicing grappling with them through the creation process. I think that's a big thing with horror authors. Mm -hmm. Um, Community is so nice for the most part. Um, and I think the reason that so many people in it are so genuinely like positive and uplifting is because we have this outlet to get some stuff out through. Yeah, you, you've just got this way to just unpack all this issues that you've been working with for through, throughout the years. In your case, peacocks. Yeah, peacocks. Just have a have a have a peacock go kill somebody. It'll be fine. That works. That Fiction. works. Okay. All right. Let us now talk about the human characters here because you've got a, a bunch of really good ones. Of course, you have this the, uh, this uh, drainage toy maker who's living in the woods who's more or less the scapegoat for all the killings and so forth. But who is the toy maker? Tell us about him. Okay. Gregory Rochester, uh, figuring out who he is, honestly, is a big piece of the book. Um, so when he's first introduced... He's introduced in these very vague terms that nobody in the town really wants to talk about. Uh, He is their boogeyman. Uh, When you drive to the outskirts of town and you drive past his property, he's got all these signs on the property, get out, go away, whatever. Uh, He's got got a tree in his front yard full of all of these old dolls that he's hung up there as, as like a warning to stay away to kind of scare the local kids off of his property. Um, he is he is very much that person that you don't want to approach, but all of that has to be reconciled with Sinclair's going through, and for reasons that the book gets into, he's looking through some of the Old Town's records, and there's all these pictures of Gregory Rochester being this like very loving person. He is in the middle of the town square, giving giving toys away to kids, running the toy shop. He's the person everybody trusts, so of figuring out what got him from likable lovable like upstanding citizen to get off my property or else dolls um is a big driving force in the story you know what tree full of dolls i think you i think you give me my uh, next idea for halloween thank you for that (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) so without being too spoilery because i obviously folks you want to you want to read the book and find out what happens can we get a hint as to what happens to Gregory that makes him sort of shift from, like you said, lovable giving away toys to nightmare tree doll? I think the best way for me to answer this question is by not answering the question. Excellent. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm going to talk about another book that was really inspirational for mine. Um, and I think if you if you read this book, then the parallels are going to become obvious when you when you read string them up. But um, Todd Kiesling has a book called Devil's Creek that is just one of my favorites. Yes, I'm getting the finger guns over here. Yes, yes. Um, Todd Kiesling, great writer. Devil's Creek is an amazing book, folks. Check it out. Yes. Um, so for for that book, it starts out with this core group of kids that are about to be sacrificed by a cult in this small town 
They escape it. This is all in the prologue. I'm not spoiling anything here. Uh, they escape it and survive. They go about their lives. And the book is kind of like an it sort of a thing where, where all of these survivors are coming back to town years later to reconcile a big bad that's happening. I love the book because of how bold and daring it is. It pushes its story to the point where a lot of other books and movies stop. Um, we get to the point where um, the cult has a lot of dominoes set up. The cult is about to do something horrendous. And this is where the hero always swoops in and saves the day. Um, but Todd Keesling had the guts to say this is not where my story's ending this is the end of act two and then he throws everything on the fire in act three and it is so much fun and so cool um so when i was writing string them up i wanted to have a similar projection to that i wanted to try to do my version of that and have that sort of a act three where everything just erupts on us so to answer your question about uh, who is Gregory and what got him here, I don't want to answer that, but it is something that is going to be lurking in the background through Acts 1 and 2. And when the pieces finally come together and it clicks, I, I tried to make it this powder keg moment where everything is, everything is on fire now. <laughs> and... Uh, we are, we are going to have a hard time putting this genie back in the bottle. Fair enough. I like that, actually. I like that. And, and also using Todd Keesling as a parallel, great choice, because his book is fucking terrifying. Love him. He's oh, so yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Any other writers out there, and I, I know I'm asking to kind of pick pick favorites here, but any writers that you've been kind of encountering lately that you are like, this is the person to read. Everyone check out their work. So I, I run a podcast called Killer Mediums, where I have a guest come on, in theory, about once a month to talk about their books, to talk about some comps to their books and how their books and their movies or whatever else it is that they create, how it plays in a certain trope. I have been exposed to so many cool indie writers um, through that podcast. So I'm going to avoid the big names. Uh, Grady Hendrix, if you're not reading him, go read him. Laurel Hightower, if you're not reading her, she is like the queen of getting to your emotional core and just turning the knife. Um, some some slightly lesser known ones that I want to heap some praise on, though. Um, Kat Valor came on my show and talked about revenge arcs and revenge tales in horror. And she has a book called Revenge Arc that is just mind-blowingly cool. Um, it is instead of being a straightforward novel or a straightforward narration, what it is, is it is a collection of Reddit posts, tweets and other things uh, that collectively combines to tell a story about an Internet uh, comic book creator that inspires a serial killer to go off and do bad things, awful things based on their webcomic. I am underselling it so much here, um, but the way that she blended that unique like method of storytelling with the story that she was trying to tell is crazy cool. Um, who else? Preston Fossil wrote a book called Beasts of 42nd Street. Yes. Oh, that my God. Such a great book. 
Such yes. a great book. I taught, I interviewed him actually a little while ago, and it was so cool to hear about what 42nd Street was like in New York City back in the 70s. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, it is deranged. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. I needed to wash my eyeballs after each session of reading that what book. What a great story, though. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my he's, God. Uh, he's killer right now. Absolutely. Yeah. He, <laughs> I see what you did there. That was good. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did, I, I did check out the Killer Minions podcast. How did you start doing it? Like, what happened that made you want to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to do a show now? I've been doing the author thing for about eight years now, and one of my favorite parts of it is connecting with other people in the community. I was lucky enough to get a couple of spots on other people's podcasts like James Sabata and Don Guillory's, the Necronoma.com. Um, and I just have so, I had so much fun talking to like-minded people about topics that we were all or both enthusiastic about. I wanted to just give myself an excuse to do it semi-regularly. Um, it is it is hard to get on people's radar and to get spots on these shows and to get the opportunities to talk about things that you love. Um, just everybody's so busy and everybody's got so many people that they're trying to talk to. It's It's just hard to kind of get in there. So I decided to make my own opportunity. Um, and that's really all it was. Um, it, it wasn't some big, I think I have something major to contribute to society through this. It, it was just, I want to talk to fun people about fun things. And this is a great excuse for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I saw that you also touch on a lot of different uh, horror tropes too, or horror tropes or horror elements. I'm curious, any tropes that really kind of stuck with you in the, in the process of doing of doing the show hmm. i think i just keeping talking about preston here for a little bit preston Hustle's episode about urban horror was really cool because i started that episode side note i do not think i'm an expert on any of this stuff so it has been really fun for me to bring on a guest who is and for me to just back out and let them be awesome for a while so I learned so much through the podcast, like in Preston's episode with the ur urban horror stuff. I kind of walked into that one expecting like, okay, we're going to talk about cities and we're going to talk about people just like living in close quarters to each other and how that affects the storyline. And that was pretty much as much as I had thought about it. Preston went off for that whole episode and it was amazing. Talking about socioeconomic dynamics, talking about the historical impact of New York City specifically. Uh, in this time period he was writing about and just like, all of the psychological effects of seeing uh, a city like that evolve through the ages and what the different phases are. It is it's just so cool um, to hear people that are genuinely passionate about these topics spilling their guts. So that's why I think that's why I struggled to answer this question at first is there's not a topic that stands out to me because I've been just consistently wonderfully amazed by the the depth of passion that people keep bringing to these random episodes do you feel like you're a better writer because you get to sit down with all these experts 200 percent. um there has not been a single person that i've talked to that i haven't walked away with some little nugget about whether that's the way to treat a certain type of character or whether that's uh the potential power of a set piece so 
uh, Brennan LaFaro came on and talked about Texas horror. And again, same sort of an idea. I'm thinking we're just going to talk about it was really hot through this whole book. And they talked about being sweaty a lot. No, he got deep into it with like the isolation aspect of it. Uh, this this country built or this state, state and country, Texas, uh, built around um, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to make our own rules. Um, and we, we are self-sufficient and self-fueling and just the whole Texan mindset that drives things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all the uh, Keelan Patrick Burke's kin. Um, just seeing how a setting can affect characters through that made me really think about, okay, well, what setting, setting am I playing with here and how is it affecting my characters? Um, I've got hollow hills in string them up. It's this small, isolated, rural town in Georgia. And to start with, that's all it was. I typed small, isolated setting because it sounded like it would be fun. I typed rural Georgia because you know, why not? That's where I live. And let me let me just go ahead and play in my own backyard. But then seeing how everybody else is using their settings to further their story, I had to circle back to that, like, okay, what are the elements of this that can really help my story along? And there's stuff there. Um, I just had to consciously be looking for it. So uh, they they kind of get my mind on all these different things that I could be doing but just wasn't thinking about until i heard their perspective and their advice uh coming through yeah since we've been talking about different horror writers i'm going to check out a couple names for folks to be also checking out one is kevin lucia of course you know him from um many many talks over the years on this show also ezekiel kincaid also known as the pastor of horror when you have that kind of nickname you know you've made it Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, both, both just great people, great writers. Check out their work. Uh, we actually have an interview dropping in a little bit about Kevin's soon-to-be-released new book, The Horror at Pleasant Brook. I'm already reading it, folks, because I get to do that, th- those that kinds of things. And holy shit, it's a good book. Years. I do not know either of them personally yet, but they're on my radar now. When you get through Kevin, check out their works. Also, Cemetery Dance Publications. I'm just going to throw that name out there. Familiar name on this program, but they work with some amazing writers. So definitely, folks, we're giving you guys your reading list for the next couple of years, okay? These are all great writers. Check them out. Um, but let's let's pivot back to your book now because um, I want to ask about Hollow Hills because that's a great name for a town. Um, what went into world building this thing? Yes. So Hollow Hills was created as... Initially, I wanted it to be as much of a blank slate as possible for my main characters to wrestle with their emotions in. Um, I've lived in the South for a long time, uh, grew up moving all over the place, but primarily been living in the South. So um, I knew kind of the mannerisms of people around here, very polite to your face and then talk shit in the background. Um, I know that people down here don't keep to themselves as much as people in other parts of the country do. Um, especially if you're in a small town down here, people are very involved in each other's lives. The gossip mill is a huge thing. Um, and I thought all of that could be a good playground for my character to handle his issues in. Um, but then also 
going along with those two things and what I think really helped the story along is just this understanding that in these small towns in Georgia, secrets are like currency around here. Um, Everybody wants to put up this facade that their lives are perfect. It's the Facebook effect, right? Um, People only post things on Facebook or social media that are positive and that they want other people to see. You you are going to get this very rosy vision of what everyone's life is by just scrolling through a social media post. You don't see the bad stuff. You don't see the struggles they're going through. In Georgia, especially, and in the Deep South, uh, that's the way people just carry themselves. Um, It is in our blood for whatever reason. So if I've got a deranged toy maker living on the edge of towns with deep, dark secrets, having him be planted in a society that absolutely will not address their issues they look the other way and try to try to be blind to them as much as possible that's just the perfect powder keg for something to erupt and a lot of times down here that is how it goes uh people just keep things contained and contained and contained until they erupt and that's not the way that you should approach your issues and that is not the way that you should process grief which is what Sinclair is trying to go through and what Rochester is trying to go through. But it's the way of life that gets thrust on you in these towns. And that is so dangerous. <laughs> Jeez. You really, uh, you really like selling that Southern lifestyle, sir. <laughs> it's great. Everything's wonderful. I say, as I smile and hide the tears. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> Me- meanwhile, here uh, up in North, up in uh, New England, we keep, everything inside no one knows anything that, that that's not going on about you it's all repressed and that's very healthy to deal with yes yes <laughs> same, same result slightly different tactics pretty pretty much yeah pretty <laughs> much does living in the south does that like factor into your books at all does that i mean does that like do you find that you kind of base the places and the people on the folks around you in this case yes i try not to do that too often mm. um I, I grew up as an army brat. So what that means, if, if listeners aren't familiar, that means dad's in the military and the military makes you move every two years oh. without. Um, so every two years you go to a different fort, they're on a different assignment and you're just bouncing all over the place. So I've lived in a lot of different places. Um, and I think it's helped me write slightly more diverse stories. Uh, because I do know kind of how people present themselves in different places. I know I know what the difference is if you walk into a small town in Kansas versus a small town in Georgia. Uh, it, it might not be something overt. It's not going to be anything like huge and world changing, but people just approach their problems a little bit differently based on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know how bad a tornado in Kansas can be. I know what a hurricane in Louisiana is. Like there there are these commonalities, but there's also just enough different flavor wherever you go that I think it's important to put the right story in the right setting. So kind of like we were, what we were talking about with Georgia. Like mm-hmm. that was that was just the right spot for Sinclair to have to deal with all of his crap. <laughs> Um, All right, let's talk a little more about Sinclair because he is the one who's more or less trying to unravel the mystery of what's causing all these all these deaths. How ready is he for this challenge? Not at all. Um, which is 
which is the problem for him. Um, so when the book starts, he has just lost his family. There is a big traumatic event that happens off camera before the story even starts, um, where his wife and his son have died, um, and he is grieving, and he is just trying to escape the world, and he is painfully depressed and going to Hollow Hills. Uh, I said at the start that it's kind of presented to him as a reset button. In his mind, I think it's more of a, I'll just curl up here and die. So as the book is starting, we see him just very much going through the motions, doing the things that his friend Johnny forced him to do, pulling him out of the house, making him go on the round, which is his job, doing all these things. And the story itself pulls him out of his shell a little bit. Um, Gregory, the villain, is going through something different but similar. And I think part of the book is having Sinclair see himself in the villain and realizing that that is not a good road to go down. Um, repressing your trauma is not a great strategy. Uh, what? Come on! It's it's worked well for me. I say as I say as I cry internally. <laughs> right. Um, but no, I I think I said earlier my my wife is a counselor, so um, a lot of times she'll come home and without breaking HIPAA, we'll kind of like talk about things that are going on and like um, she'll she'll talk generally about some issues that our clients are having and just like kind of spill guts to me. And a lot of times the things that she's upset about and the things that she's struggling with, with her clients is people that aren't taking an active role in their recovery. They're trying to avoid issues. They're trying to just brush skeletons into their closets and hearing about the damage that does to people in their lives really put this book into overdrive for me because I, I realized that I could have a character that needed to come to that realization or get butchered um, for for failing to realize that. It takes it takes this idea that you need to confront your demons and really cranks it up to a 12 because of the murder puppets. Mm. I want to talk about the cover for this book because yeah. the cover is so fucking good. Thank Holy you. Holy crap. Who did the work? How did this all come to be? So the cover was, as I was trying to put some of the pieces together for the very, very, very initial outline of this, um, I knew kind of the cornerstone kill that I wanted to have in. Um, there is one character that is a turd of a human being uh, that gets what's coming to him. Um, and it's at about the midpoint of the book, and it is the event that makes Sinclair and Johnny and all of our other protagonists realize, oh shit, this is real. Um, the, there's no, we might be seeing things moving in the shadows anymore. There's no, somebody might be out for revenge here. It is clearly, there are, there are killers among us, and this thing has been butchered. Uh, but the the bad guy gets strung up by his innards, uh, kind of puppet style, in the town square for everyone to see. It is a warning sign to everybody to get out. And I, I've always been a person that kind of processes their thoughts by doodling. Um, I apologize to all of my middle school notebooks. Um, 
So um, I'm, I'm trying to figure all of this out and I've got that scene as this big pivotal moment uh, driving us into the, the fun part of the book. Uh, so I just kind of doodled out this guy kind of strung up by his by his innards. And it's a really crude like stick figure drawing. But I had that hanging over my computer the whole time I was working on it as like my focus point. Like, it, Yes, it's murder puppets. And yes, we're trying to take this seriously. But I I have a guy with his organs pulled out hanging over a town square. And like we, we need to keep getting to that point in these different scenes and in these different climaxes and whatever else. When Crystal Lake Publishing picked up the book, they kind of reached out to me as like, we like this, we would like to publish this. Can we talk about the title and can we talk about the cover? Because they were they were considering changing the title for a second. And I said, well, let me, let me pitch this to you. I've got this little doodle and I think it merges, it, it makes the title make more sense when you see the guy strung up and the title is string them up. Um, so I sent them the little doodle and they were like, Ooh, okay, maybe. And they sent that doodle to their cover artist and the cover artist came back and just like knocked this thing out of the park for me. Um, and I think it, seeing all of it pulled together like that through an artist was, I don't know. It was just, it was very cool. And it felt the book, it, it made the book feel whole for the first time and i that makes no sense but maybe it does in a weird way yeah i'm curious what crystal lake had for alternative titles because i know the title can it's so hard to sum up a book in like three or four words yeah yeah they they didn't pitch any alternate ideas to me it was just uh we, we don't quite get it yet is there something we can do to make this more like obvious and in your face like sure. murder to the murderer <laughs> murder puppets, I think I think that murder puppets would be a little bit on the nose. <laughs> I do like a title personally that is it, it sort of veers you towards what's gonna happen, but it doesn't paint you a picture, you know? Like there's yeah. one book I read a while back uh called Skitter, and it's about space spiders. And I thought that's a great title because it is that sound that they make when they run along, but it's not, you know, carnivorous space spiders, you know, from Planet X or whatever. Eight-legged freaks, or you know. <laughs> that movie has moments. <laughs> the movie has moments. Um, was string them up your original idea for a title, or did you go through different ones? Yeah, that string them up was that actually might have come along before the book even did. I, wow. I might have had that in the back of my mind before the outline. <laughs> wow, that's right. So, so you really like lucked out with uh with a uh, with uh, titles here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is, is this book a one-off or do you feel like there could be some more down the road? I think this one's a one-off. Ah. Um, I, I say that the last book that I made and self-published was Killer Be Killed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a camp slasher novel and I wrote that as a one-off too. And then I sat on it for a while and I kept thinking about where I left some of the characters. It's like, I, I really want to make this a trilogy. Like I figured out a story arc that would make sense for the ones that are going to survive all the way to the end. And I figured out like how I could build the plot and make things bigger. And it just kind of came to me like later on over time. Hmm. Uh, I don't think string them up's going to do the same thing. I think I've settled everything for this character in this town and this, or at least what's left of them. 
Um, uh, well, we can dream. We can dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we've talked a few times about, about working with Crystal Lake, and I'm curious, is, is this the first publisher you've worked with? Because you mentioned that your other stuff is self-published. So I got so lucky getting in with them. I've been self-publishing for a while. I think there is a lot of positive stuff to be said about people that self-publish. I have realized over the course of the last few years that it's just not something that plays to my strong suits. Um, I am good at story creation. I am good at like meeting people and getting along with people. I am god awful at marketing. I cannot get my own name out there to save my life. I cannot. I I have confidence issues, so I have a very hard time putting my own stuff out there and being like, this is great, you should buy it. And if I'm not putting it out there and saying that, nobody else will in the self-publishing world. So making the move to traditional publishing, and especially with Crystal Lake, it was a great chance for me to kind of back off of the things that I'm actively bad at uh, and focus more on the, the aspects of this that I'm actually, I think, good at. Uh, the story creation, coming up with weird promotional ideas and stuff like that. Yeah, I think you've touched on the biggest challenge for a lot of artists, whether they do music, write, do comics, whatever it is. Yeah, pitching yourself is hard. I mean, you you create this book and you're like, okay, now what do I do? How do I come up with a press campaign? How do I come up with a social media campaign? Who do I reach out to in the media world? These things are hard. They seem easy, but they're very, very hard. So yeah, sometimes you need the experts. And there are there are a bunch of self-publishing people that that is their strong suit. Like they are damn good at finding readers and making connections with people and just like taking the initiative themselves. Like I'll I'll throw his name out here. Michael Clark is a really good self-published author. And he's really good at getting people's attention about him being a good self-published author. Um, he is the king of swag. He sends these crazy cool swag packages. Like I've got, I've got a little vial of the sand from the beach at the beginning of Jaws because he went out there and he made the day trip and got a bunch of little vials of beach uh, and was sending out to people as a promotional thing. And it's just, he's got these like really cool art prints of his villain, Mildred, the, the murdering ghost in his patients of the dead man trilogy. And it's just, it's one of those things where you get a package from him and you're instantly excited about his book. It's like, damn dude, you, yes. I, I, I know you are good, but even if I didn't know you were good, I would be so excited to like latch onto you and follow what you were doing. And it's just, when you get people that, that are, that are so strong at that, it's so cool. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what you, you gotta do is you gotta come up with your own package. You gotta, you, you gotta send folks these like bloody puppets or something. <laughs> That'll go over well. Can I, can I jump in here? This is a perfect segue for something. Oh, go for it. So to to promote string them up, um, Crystal Lake Publishing is doing a giveaway. So yeah, perfect. All right, there um, we go. Let me find her. She, oh, this this is Sally the Murder Doll. Uh, or Jesus. Sally Doll. We're kind of going back and forth on names. Um, there is a creative around here that does these 
absurdly creepy dolls and puppets. Um, and she, I talked to her, told her I had a murder puppet book coming out. She makes murder puppets. So, so it, it was like the match made in heaven. So Crystal Lake is giving Sally away to somebody that pre-orders, string them up and emails them proof of the pre-order. Um, all of the details about this are on their website. If you just Google Sally sees all doll, like she sees everything. Um, if you Google that, it's it's the top link. Um, all the directions to get in on the sweepstakes, to get an entry. Um, I really need somebody to get this thing out of my house because it's... Uh, it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's fucking terrifying. It is goddamn terrifying. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, William, man, we are coming down to the end of the conversation. I have been loving learning about String Them Up. And, folks, if you haven't done it already, pre-order this sucker, okay? It comes out September 22nd through our good friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. And you have a chance for your pre-order to get yourself a creepy-ass doll. <laughs> Absolutely amazing stuff, folks. If you want to learn more, you go to thewilliamsterling.wixsite.com. It's all there. Link will be in the description. And of course, get his other books through Frozen Veins, through Withered Roots, Synapse, the Killer Be Killed trilogy, bit of wordplay there. And of course, string them up. And William, thank you for joining me and definitely looking forward to the next conversation. Thank you so much. This was such a great time. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can find this show on your favorite podcast platforms and new episodes are added every week, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. You can get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. Whether you want to suggest a guest, submit music for the bi-weekly Blackout Collection playlist, or just say hello. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.